test one two one two hello humans welcome to my review of the martian this is a very special Bizzlecast because for this review slash discussion i'm bringing in my dad papa bizzle finally got him on he loves a Bizzlecast. i'm always talking about him because we always see these movies together and we fucking love this movie and i did a whole review on my own but i uh, really just love our whole discussion and so since we talk about some spoilery stuff in our interview i want to just do a quick five minutes or so of my non-spoiler review and general impressions and thoughts about the martian and then we will bring in papa bizzle so the martian this movie is amazing it's an a-plus hollywood movie it's an a-plus sci-fi movie it's so hollywood and if you really break it down it's by the numbers but man do they take those numbers to the furthest extremes we have seen in a very long time i remember seeing apollo 13 when i was a kid and you know ron howard tom hanks they're great at that point you know they're they're great at that age apollo 13 nailed the world being hypnotized by multiple astronauts in that case trying to make it back to earth against all odds but here the stakes are way higher even though it's one man and based on an acclaimed hard science fiction book and by hard science fiction i mean fiction that uses very hard science we could be doing today what happens in the movie we've just chosen for funding reasons not to do that but we easily could be and so it's really more in the speculative fiction category as we sci-fi nerds call it to separate the very sci-fi it basically means you know very near future possibility this is an example of a movie that achieves its A-plus rating pretty much all on execution. The screenplay is great, but if you did not know Ridley Scott directed this movie, you would never guess Ridley Scott directed this movie. It's funny, the camera's moving all over the place, it's very self-referential, down-to-earth, human. I mean, you know, I love everything from Blade Runner to Kingdom of Heaven with Ridley Scott, but... There's more humor in this movie, true, genuine human humor, than in all of his other movies combined. But this surpassed even my high hopes. This is going to be a mostly non-spoiler review, but I will say, the plot is really the least important part of the movie. Not because of various plot twists aren't interesting and cool, but because you know where it's going. And they tell us in the trailers, you know? This guy, they think he's dead on Mars, they leave him, turns out to be alive, they find out that he's alive, and they mount numerous different kinds of rescue efforts to try and save him. We knew all that from the trailer. So any, you know, semi-spoilery stuff will be along those lines. No major plot reveals here. This is the greatest Hollywood ensemble casting and performance ever, if you consider the fact that you have a central protagonist who takes up at least a third, if not a half, of the screen time with his individual solo performance. So you have to make Matt Damon three-dimensional, and they do so purely through the writing and performance and direction. We don't even find out that he has family until late in the movie, but it doesn't matter. He totally sells it. He sells being a brilliant but regular guy, and you're on board with him right away. And you're on board with this movie right away. And 
What's interesting is this is one of the most upbeat and optimistic movies you will ever see, especially of this sort of you know genre, I, I guess you would say. But there's a great dramatic misdirect for the first 10 to 20 minutes when they go right to Mars, there's a storm, rest of the crew runs away, thinks Matt Damon is dead, turns out to be alive, and immediately instead of being scared and talking about how horrifying the situation is, starts applying his science, and science is glorified in this movie. This movie's all about science, and it got a PG-13 rating, which is unbelievable because they dropped numerous F-bombs, which is an absolute no-no for PG-13. And I'm walking out to the first viewing, and I should be saying, I'm recording this podcast shortly after my second viewing, where I literally brought a notepad with a red pen and put on my phone very, very dimly, and was writing this all during the movie. But you know what? I save it for the A-plus yet. But because of the dark situation where he's stranded and seems that there's no hope, and you know him being injured early on, there's a very gruesome scene early on after he wakes up, realizing he's been left, and he's got some piece of debris you know, lodged in his belly, and there's blood, and it's gruesome, and he has to staple it shut. And, you know, you're going, oh my god, you know, this is going to be such a dark movie, but I knew it wasn't. I I had heard enough of just, you know, quips, blips of reviews to know that this was not a dark, cynical movie, and it is the opposite. It's a great dramatic misdirect, because as soon as Matt Damon starts healing himself from his puncture wound, which lingers for a while, there's at least two or three minutes, probably more, of all nonverbal stuff for Matt Damon, and he communicates the whole thing, all the emotions, but, you know, trying to keep his intellect engaged. And he doesn't talk, and he finally turns on the TV camera, which is a big part of the filming of this movie, and they do shaky cam through helmet cameras and through cameras on the rovers and on the base. Ridley Scott just finds great ways to go, you know, very modern, very shaky, which is not normally his style, but to keep the, you know, the main beat stuff in the typical Ridley Scott filming. But Matt Damon looks into the camera. We haven't heard him say anything, basically, since the explosion. And he just goes, Fuck! <laughs> One of numerous F-bobs that are highly effective in this movie. And what I was getting to before is that I think they let them get away with the F-bombs and a lot of shits because this is a movie that inspires our kids. This is a PG-13 movie that has some adult stuff, but the trade-off for getting kids excited about science and math and exploring the unknown is so worth it. It is absolutely so worth it. And that that was what I talked to my dad about after my first viewing. We went together. I was trying to figure out the F-bomb thing. And I'm like, you know what? The MPAA just said, screw it. This We need our kids to see this. We need our 10, 11, 12, 13-year-olds to see this. There's this you know, huge, super talented ensemble cast. Every single person kills it, and I'm going to talk about as many of them as possible. But at the heart of it, you have Matt fucking David, Goodwill Hunting, the talented Mr. Ripley, Bourne, Jason Bourne, and here's the thing, and this is why I love The Martian, or one of the many reasons. It is a superhero movie against all odds. This hard science fiction movie with this huge ensemble cast with a tiny budget, which I will get back to, of $100 million. I have no idea how they did the CGI and practical stuff on this on $100 million. Ridley Scott's a genius. Matt Damon is a superhero. 
but he's a superhero that actually exists. He is that super smart guy at the Jet Propulsion Laboratories. He's that super smart guy at NASA. He's that super smart guy at Google or Apple or Microsoft. We talk about solutions in our society, you know, which is a nice way of saying consulting, I suppose. But he is a solutions-oriented guy. He is Captain America. Honestly, it's exactly how Chris Evans would respond, assuming he was that smart um, in that situation. And, you know, there are times when things go wrong. But they telegraph it. It's great. They tell you ahead of time almost every time. It's only a few times that things really go wrong. But you know because of the tone of the movie, by the time the really bad stuff goes wrong, that they're going to find a way. And I'm going to stop there and bring in the guest of honor, my dad, Top of Bizzle. For the rest of the review, we will be talking about some spoilers, so be warned and enjoy the show. Alright, Bizzlecast listeners, here with Papa Bizzle, finally, on the Martian Review Podcast. Want to say hi to the Bizzlecast listeners? Hey, listeners out there, it's uh, pretty exciting to be on the podcast with your, your number one son, so thanks for having me. <laughs> one and only. Um, <laughs> and uh, we are here to continue talking about the Martian. You heard my early review, but I really wanted to bring in my dad. I've been trying to get him on for a long time. He loves going to these movies with me, loves good science fiction movies, although, as I've talked about, I mean, we might talk about more. This wasn't really much of a science fiction movie. It really felt very modern, but we love this movie, and we went into it expecting to love it, but we loved it even more than we thought. So I've seen it three times, first time with my dad, a second time I went alone just to take a ton of notes, as I mentioned earlier on in the podcast, and I went with my mom today, who isn't normally into this stuff, but because of the human drama and the comedy and it just being awesome awesome. She loved it. So it was great to see her reaction. And I grilled her a little bit at dinner as well. And me and my dad had sort of a pre-podcast conversation last night. So, you know, early thoughts about the movie experience. You get in there, you sit down and what's going on? Well, look, I mean, we knew from the trailer and all the marketing propaganda that this was almost certainly going to be a winner. And we had, uh, you know, pretty high expectations, but it quickly in the two hours and 14 minutes or whatever, it quickly surpassed our, our expectations. I mean, it's uh, just in terms of the way it's executed, the way it's directed, the way it's casted, the way it's acted, the humor is out of sight. It's just hysterical. And who would have thought that this would be a Ridley Scott movie? I mean, yeah. there, there's no really no clue that, that, that he's behind this because it's such a departure for him. It is a departure, but the one thing that's not a departure is excellent filmmaking from minute one to the closing credits. But yeah, it was a departure in tone. I'm, there's more genuine human, you know, comedy and drama. Well, not drama, but genuine hum, human comedy and humor than in all of his other movies combined. And me and my dad love most of his epic movies, if not all of them. He's got at least three or four that we that we love a lot. But you know, Ridley Scott has done so many different kinds of sci-fi. He helped pioneer modern horror sci-fi with Alien. He really pioneered modern AI sci-fi with Blade Runner. Everyone copies from that movie, as weird as it is, in Super 80s, but, you know, everything from Battlestar Galactica to Ex Machina to, you know, all of these types of movies. 
very heavily influenced by Blade Runner. So he has these crazy visions, and then he decides to not only take what we nerds call hard science fiction property, which is, you know, fiction based on hard science set in the near future. It's really speculative fiction in that sense. Uh, We actually could be at that technological level or close to it if our priorities were different. But anyways, it's much closer to home. It's, It's much more real. It's naturalistic acting, which is not his M.O., goes the other way on this in every single way you can imagine but (laughs) i'll give to ridley scott he knows how to handle his lead male characters yeah i mean uh i mean i don't know how hard it is to to handle matt damon because you know he's that's true he's amongst the best but boy the performance that he puts in uh was just a, a beautiful thing to observe Yep, but he did handle Orlando Bloom, did Ridley Scott, um, who is a solid but not great actor, and Kingdom of Heaven is easily his best performance. And he also handled Russell Crowe, who is a great actor, but had only been like a superstar actor for a few years before Gladiator, and is very volatile, to say the least. Didn't bother Ridley Scott. Got an Oscar-winning performance, literally, out of (laughs) Russell Crowe playing a Gladiator. Who saw that coming? And so he, you know, he knows how to take these great actors, take them to the next level. But what he has not always succeeded in in the past is the ensemble cast, especially when it's an ensemble cast that has to be so funny and fleshed out, and yet you're rooting for every single one of them. I mean, you know, Ridley Scott with no bad guys, it's it's just amazing. You know, one of the, the biggest and most pleasant surprises about this film is that it's not dystopic. Right. And, you know, you know me, I have such a hard-on about this abundance, this unfortunate abundance of dystopic movies. Yeah, there's maybe a small handful of them that are impressive pieces of art, but enough's enough already. And so how does this mid to late uh, 70 year old guy who has a history of doing dystopic pieces, um, tragic, you know, tragic, dramatic pieces. Yeah, they're just, they're, they're historical tragedies, although they always have a heart. And, and while they don't always have happy endings, at least Kingdom of Heaven and Gladiator were pretty uplifting despite the darkness in it. So he has that gene somewhere, right? Yeah, but there's no darkness in this movie at all. I don't know if I would call the scenario dark. I mean, it's it's a nail biter, but it's not really it's not really dark. And everything that transpires in the film is so uplifting, either that or or comedic. (laughs) You know, it's um, it's just a wonderful antidote to all this dystopic crap that's out there. So I talked a lot about Matt Damon, started to talk about the crew, but my conversation with my dad last night, he had some great insights about the amazing dozen or so of the ensemble cast. And so I thought, let's talk about them, and then we'll jump into spoiler territory, and we can get back to Matt Damon through that, because it's hard to you know really dig more into his character. Uh, do you want to just any quick thoughts about Matt Damon before we go sort of uh, uh, ensemble thoughts? Yeah, you know, um, you know, one of the, the handful of issues that we were scratching our head about uh, during the movie and since was how does this get a PG-13 rating yep. with with Matt throwing uh, a handful of Fs around and a handful of Ss around. He says asshole too, by the way, which I didn't notice till tonight, I think. And also, by the way, there, there, there's some brief nudity in it as well. You get, get a butt shot of him. You can get away with that PG-13. 
Oh, okay. Yep. You you get you can get a butt shot and you get a couple shits. Uh, that's normally the formula. All right. You can kill a thousand people, but as long as there's not a drop of blood, it's ridiculous. Right. I, as you know, I'm going to do a whole podcast about my <laughs> dissatisfaction with the MPAA, but they got it right here. I mean, the way they they use the F word, the way his character used the F word, was so organic and it felt so real and natural. I, I think that it was easy probably for them to get this PG-13 rating because here Matt Damon is like this Captain America-style uh, superhero. Which I made the Captain America uh, reference in the review, so I love that. Nice. Yep. nice. Yeah. So, you know, his, his superpower is his brain. Right. And, um, you know, he kind of – his character exemplifies the best of the human spirit. I mean, he's got grit. He's courageous. He's witty. He's incredibly smart. He's got heart. He's got huge faith in himself and in, in the science and in the team right. behind him. So he's this like this super heroic but realistic character, not a real science fiction superhero, but like a real guy who's just heroic in, in, in character and, and, and talent level. Yeah. So I'm not so surprised thinking about it that they got away with uh, a handful of spoken and then written Fs. Yeah, him being a relatable hero and everyman hero, I yeah. think is another great Captain America connection. And yeah. as I've talked about in my various Avengers podcasts, you know, I've come to love Cap the best, even though he seems on the surface to be the least three-dimensional. Not the case, at least as portrayed by Chris Evans. But there's two things I realize, and one connects directly to this. The first is just that he's Captain America. He's not Captain the American government. And in fact, he regularly disagrees with the American government. And in fact, we're going to see him go to war against the American American government this spring in Captain America Civil War. So he represents the ideals of what we love about this country, what we want this country to be about, not what it is. And so that was great. But the other thing is, you know, you think he's a superhero because of his shield skills and he's super strength, but he's a superhero because of his attitude and his heroism and sacrifice and, and selflessness, right? Yes. And that, but that's what makes him compelling. You know, if you give the shield skills to like a neutral character, it's really not that interesting. But you put it with the stakes of what he's fighting for, which is every innocent person on the planet. And, you know, that's what's great. I mean, Watney is trying to survive. That's what the whole movie is about. Matt Damon's character, Mark Watney. But he is fighting for the human spirit in a way, I think, was something I took away on, on subsequent viewings. He he would talk about doing this for the world and the world watching, but it was not for egotistical or narcissistic reasons ever, it seemed like. Right, yeah. The, the, the humanism of this movie just oozes out of its pores all over the place, which, you know, one thing that, that resonates with me and with us and was so, so wonderful about it. And another aspect of this Mark Watney character that uh, Andy Weir, the author, highlighted or, or, or brought uh, or created was that who, who's, who's the superhero here? He's a freaking botanist. Yeah, a, you know, a PhD botanist. How, how cool is, is that? Like, like probably the least macho science, uh, you know, l label you could come up with. Yep, and indeed, Mars did come to fear his botany powers. <laughs> right, it did. <laughs> Yeah, that was one of the great reveals ever. I mean, you kind of think he's a botanist with the sa the dirt samples in the beginning, but you know, when he's talking about having to you know grow on a lifeless 
planet. He picks up his, you know, his file and points to his name. He's like, luckily, I'm a botanist. And then <laughs> later he says, I am, you know, literally the greatest botanist on this planet. Um, right. A lot of great botany jokes. Absolutely. He's funny. You know what really sticks with me on the subsequent viewings is his dramatic performance. I mean... <sighs> When he loses it, when he loses the potato farm after he invested everything in that, but you know the the ultimate for me that gives me chills more with each feeling is he's in the escape shuttle at the end. The Hermes spaceship is overhead. They're about to execute the plan, and for the first time in you know a year and a half, he's hearing his commander's voice, Commander Lewis, played by Jessica Chastain, who's amazing in this. We'll get back to her. First time he's hearing her voice, and she's asking, you know, are are you ready? And he, you know, and he he tries to say like, yeah, yeah, everything's cool, but he's shaken and he's crying and you know it's all after you know after surviving a year and a half on mars now it's all hitting him because this is what it's come down to this harebrained plan to somehow you know like hit a bullet with a smaller bullet essentially right (laughs) right um to quote scotty from star trek um so yeah i mean he, he he should get nominated for this i mean my nominations are always skewed although i was right about birdman so maybe the academy is moving in a more progressive direction let me put it this way. As someone who hasn't seen a ton of movies this year, in terms of Hollywood movies, I'm not sure who's put in a more epic performance. Well, you know, as, as an actor, I mean, he, he's, he's fabulous. He, he, he's a fearless actor. Um, right. And witness the fact that he played, I don't think you saw this, it was a, uh, I think it was made, made for cable, made for HBO, but he played Liberace's lover. Really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. He played, he was gay and, and talented Mr. Ripley too. It, it's yeah. so hard to do when you're so clearly a masculine heterosexual guy. Go ahead. Right. But, but in this, in this piece, he, he, he was flaming gay. So, I mean, he was really, uh, uh, uh uber effeminate and, you know, so, I mean, he's nothing he's, he's afraid to take on. Yeah, and there's not that many, you know, male actors that fall into that category. What other young, relatively young actors out there have had such a wide range of stuff? You know, Daniel Day-Lewis is already the next generation. I'm thinking him and Leo and Colin Farrell. And yeah. I, D- Damon's got to be at the top of that generation, right? Has to be, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, we'll get back to Damon. But I want to talk about the other characters. And I definitely want to talk about some thematic stuff as well. We both have a lot of notes i've already done a lot of talking so i'm just gonna let you go start with a character or theme that's that stood out for you and uh we'll, we'll, we'll just wrap on it well you know over the years we've we've had a number of conversations about uh, jessica chastain um you weren't her her biggest supporter uh over the years i've always liked her i've seen her in lots of different movies from zero dark 30 to the help to interstellar to Lawless with Tom Hardy, which was a, a cool movie, Tree of Life. You know, I, I, I uh, okay, Tree of Life, I want to get back to. I, I thought she might have been in The Help. I didn't IMDb it. I don't know how I remembered it. You must have been raving about her, and that's why I remembered it. Yeah, she plays a, uh, a hyper-feminine 1950s-type um, Southern Belle in it. So she's very, very versatile. Uh, I've always enjoyed watching her. Um, she, for me, she's e- easy to look at. And uh, she does a great job with this commander role. I mean, she's the commander of this high-performing team. And she, I mean, she just hits it right on, on the head where she presents this kind of androgynous persona uh, and just 
it, it just hits hits the right note with with this performance. Yeah, it's not easy for for a, a woman to, to pull off. I I don't I don't think in this in this in this specific role as, as a commander of a of, of a Mars mission. Right. Few notes on that. So we in in our sort of pre podcast conversation yesterday, we talked a lot about Chastain. And I wanted, you know, for the record, she's a very, very attractive lady. She's just not the Bizzle style, you know. I mean, it's it's going to happen. I and I'm being a redhead. I am not naturally into redhead, so that's part of it for sure. Right, right. Um, but I haven't really been critical of her in the past. I just haven't felt that the roles have always fit her. Now, I will say, Tree of Life, which may have been her first big role with Brad Pitt. So mm-hmm. I hated that movie when I saw it because I couldn't get over Tarek Malik's pretentiousness. Um, it was clear in the beginning of the end with the Sean Penn stuff where he's like in heaven. You have no idea what the fuck is going on. But <laughs> it, the family stuff with him with Brad Pitt and Chastain really stuck with me. And so yeah, it's special. I, it is. And so the thing is, any you know criticisms or somewhat you know dissatisfaction was informed by loving her in that role. And I thought she didn't have, at least at the time, she didn't have Claire Danes's sense of authority from an acting standpoint, I didn't think, in Zero Dark Thirty. Meaning, I didn't buy her as a crazy, obsessed terrorist finder as much as Claire. But as you know, I'm very biased when it comes to Claire. Right. Um, although I have been critical of Homeland, so, you know, I, I can be objective here. But she was the best part of that movie, by far, other than Chris Pratt being the hilarious uh, Navy yeah, SEAL, yeah. Pr- presaging him becoming a big star a year later or whatever. But uh, I, you know, I bought her performance in, in uh, 30... Uh, Zero Dark Thirty, a hook, line, and sinker. I, I swallowed it completely. I thought she was great in, in that role. I, I just couldn't stop thinking about Homeland. It's not her fault or the movie's fault. I okay. just, you know, I mean, for me, Claire Danes is the, you know, crazy, sexy, badass terrorist on Earth, but she was great. And then in Interstellar, as I mentioned, yeah. um, the problem with her character was just that the young Murph, the young uh, daughter, that she plays the older version of, who's Matthew McConaughey's daughter, is so fantastic in the first third as a child actor that, you know, when suddenly there's a time jump because he's in a gravity well and a wormhole and whatever, and all of a sudden his daughter goes from, like, 11 to 35, played by Jessica Chastain, you know, and then you had Michael Caine's character who had a pretty, you know, cringe-worthy turn. I don't know. Like, that, that part of the movie was the sloppiest part. Again, not her fault. And in this movie, she was amazing from the beginning. And it didn't even take to when we got back to them on the ship, like 30 or 40 minutes in. It was true. In true. That That's bit, right. You That's know, right. I mean, she's immediately in charge on both a personal and professional level with everyone. You buy their chemistry right away. She's in charge, but she's not condescending. As I always talk about, the epitome of a natural leader inspires people without having to try, gives orders, and people follow them because they're the best, and that's why they're in charge. And I, I, I'm immediately in on her from you know second one, and then we get to the storm right away, and she's forced to assess the situation and try and save everybody, and... You know, I talk about how with these female leads like Carrie Fisher and Zoe Saldana and Scarlett, they give them these corny lines 
because they know they can deliver him. Meaning, you know, I can't remember the exact line, but when she's going back after him, she just keeps saying, like, I'm not leaving him here, I'm not leaving him here. You know, in lesser hands, that could be like, okay, I could have written that dialogue, but... You're you're just so with her as a commander. She's telling them to get their asses on the ship. She's going there. You know, it's an order. And uh, and then when you first see her again, before they find out the news, down the line in the movie, even though it says four months later, they frame her face so you can tell she's been constantly thinking about him for four straight months. So yeah, you you go you go rave about her. I, I she's she's amazing. Yeah, she, she perfectly sells this role as as the Hermes crew leader. Uh, on this uh, Ares three mission that they're on, man, she just she just beautifully sells it. So this is an example of when you're trying to sell a team, they only have twenty to thirty minutes on screen together, probably maybe slightly more, but not much. This is the perfect case from a filmmaking standpoint where you want to have more scenes and make them shorter to keep them in your mind's eye. Now, of course, the whole end of the movie hinges on them, and by then you've already bought into their teamwork. But, you know, it's not like the Avengers where you have the same eight guys for two and a half hours trying to sell a team. Like, you mm-hmm. know, you had to buy that chemistry, and they did it, and they did it without going the Spielberg route or the Lucas route of going too archetypal, you know, to, like, Joseph Campbell, blah, blah, blah. You know, like, yeah, there was a German guy and there was a Latino guy, but neither of them fit into stereotypes, and everyone had roles that made sense but were different. Like, young, cute, sweet, adorable Kate Mara is actually the techno babble science nerd, perfect choice. Martinez is the pilot. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I loved watching them in this third viewing tonight, actually. I, I was very fixated on the crew. And uh, I guess that's a mixture of, obviously, performance, but writing and directing, working in harmony, right? Right. And, and you make the, uh, the great point in the, um, where you do your solo review that uh, a wonderful device that they used was all the uh, monologist stuff that Matt Damon does when he's alone and talking to us uh, and doing his, his his daily log and talking about yeah. and doing the character development for those characters. It's amazing, right? He, he's he's fleshing them out and how he's describing certain aspects of how he experiences them. So they're they're getting more more screen time without being on the screen because of how Matt Damon is explaining them. Absolutely, absolutely. He's, you know, forced to listen to Jessica Chastain's horrible 70s disco music, which is an ongoing gag throughout. Uh, it's driving him crazy. It's the only music he has to listen to for some reason. And uh, he turns on, uh, turn the beat around. It just goes, uh, I absolutely refuse to turn the beat around. And little things, you know, he he implies that, that uh, Johansson's... Uh, human waste smelled worse than the rest you know but that just establishes we already know he'd been making fun of her up to that point they got like a brother sister thing going on right and that 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 line he does about her when when he's looking at her computer i mean that's incredible how it helps to flesh out her character what's what's the line so Matt Damon is forced to go into Johansson's computer, uh, Johansson played by Kate Mara, who I do have a huge crush on, in order to look up a hexadecimal code to communicate with NASA because they can't communicate directly. And he finds all sorts of like nerdy 80s games and so forth on her computer. And he refers to her computer as the Smithsonian of loneliness. 
right. Which is like pelvic sorcery. Just where did they come up with that? <laughs> right, like pelvic sorcery, right. right. Uh, um, but, you know, but the thing is, Kate Mara is so cute and engaging in those first two minutes and the other times we see her that, you know, she's exactly the one they should be making fun of because, you know, she is kind of the most normal in some ways of all of them into sort of being a nerd or whatever. But yeah, again, making connections. You know, the German guy vocal is the one we don't really connect with. I guess, you know, you don't even think about it. There's so much else going on. Right, right. Yeah, they definitely spend more time on on Pena's character, uh, Martinez, and on Bucky, on Bucky's character, uh, Chris Beck. Yeah, Sebastian Stan's character, Chris Beck. Yep. Uh, He's he's the physician on, on the flight. And he seems pretty normal. And then there's there's a there's a thing going on between him and, and Kate. Um, so they're like the two re- really kind of normal down down to earth characters. Yeah, actually, I was watching. Sebastian Stan does not have much more time on screen than the German guy, but he's just so he just has an amazing presence to him. And, and his character isn't even that quote-unquote interesting and he's not weird he's just a normal guy but like chris evans and this is why (laughs) real quick side note this is why bucky coming back to the fold with with cap uh with chris evans is going to work great because their personalities uh, are very similar in that way they don't have to say much and just have a great presence which which he did and then you know kate mara humanizing him even more Uh, you know i love late romances that are sold subtly who cares use your imagination Yes, absolutely. Although you don't have to, because in the credits scene, they have a baby while they watch the space, uh, the space <laughs> launch. But um, so let's let's jump to NASA, and we'll jump to some other stuff. I mean, it's hard to know where to start. I guess you have to start with Jeff Daniels and Chiwetel Ejiofor. You got Jeff Daniels as the director of NASA, who's the hard ass, always looking at the big picture, skeptical at various points. Whereas Chiwetel Ejiofor as Vincent Kapoor, who's the head of the Mars mission, is gung-ho from the beginning about trying to rescue this guy on Mars. And they do butt heads at points, but in the end, they always end up coming back together. Um, is is Ejiofor a legend already, just in terms of his reputation? It's getting there. He's he's real close. The way the, the thing is, real it's close. the way directors and actors speak about him. That's the only reason I say that. I mean, I'm biased because I love his movies, but you know, everyone wants to be in in movies with him. I mean, everyone wants them in their movie. And we saw another one today with Julia Roberts and Nicole Kidman. He's the lead. It was a trailer that we saw, Mom and Me, before um, before The Martian started. He's the detective. It's about him. Unbelievable. Oh, interesting. And he has a real American accent in that trailer, which was great. I don't know if the mm. movie will be good with those two women, but I don't know. I mean, he can be such a psychotic bad guy as the operative in Serenity and just, you know, so lovable in this one. I mean, he's, you know, you're seeing it mostly through him and NASA in terms of screen time, and you're kind of with him the most. He's a mix of practical and... Uh, idealistic i guess you might say did you feel like he they overplayed early when he was trying to get daniels to put the satellite on the on the on the mars base the his delivery almost made it sound like he had a feeling that he might still be alive or something i don't know maybe i was looking too far into it no i i heard you say that and uh, I don't, you know, I've only seen it once, so I don't have a, a clear sense. No, but I think I, I agree with you. I think that he he did have a sixth sense about it. Yeah. And it took him like a nanosecond to put it all together when Mackenzie Davis, M- Mindy, the Bindi Park character, Mission Control's satellite engineer, when she brought, 
you know, the, the initial little bit of data to him. I mean, he, it was like he, he knew it, it was going to happen. Yeah. So I think, I think you're correct about it. And that's honestly the only major part of science that they, they really didn't address and would have been easy to do and communicate is a, how can the base so easily survive a storm, but the you know, escape ship can't, you know, that they couldn't, you know, batten down with like steel titanium rods, uh, the, the rockets, it wouldn't blow over, and a sandstorm that didn't even damage the base. Um, but that would have been how they explain why, it, you know, how Chiwetel could explain or think that he might be alive because he knows he could survive in the base, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's such an obvious piece of science exposition, but who cares? They had to set up the drama and space out the, the science exposition. I mean, this is way below Star Trek in terms of techno babble, in terms of how it's presented, but it's rapid-fire science stuff for long stretches. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he's just one of those wonderful, uh, charismatic black actors that we have, you know, the wire... The, the crew from The Wire, uh, Michael Michael B and Edris Alba, and yeah. they're just they're just so exciting to watch. And and Jeff Daniels, um, it, it's interesting because you know I had watched the two seasons on HBO of The Newsroom where he plays the oh. Dan Rather character, and it's a uh, it's it's a Sorkin piece uh, where the uh, not in my opinion not Aaron Sorkin's best work. I mean the the dialogue is is just brutally precious as Sorkin can, can do, but it's, it's no, it's no West Wing, but this whole character that you see that the Teddy Sanders director of NASA, Jeff Daniels, I would argue has already done this character on, on the HBO series, uh, newsroom. It doesn't take anything away from it really, because it's the right character to use. Yeah. And he, and if, you know, it feels exactly right, but he's, he's done this Teddy Sanders character all, already. Yeah, but better, more minimalist writing. I mean, I, I didn't oh, watch Newsroom, right. but I know Sorkin. Right. Uh, I'm not. Yeah. You know, I love dense. I mean, Joss Whedon is one of the densest out there. But the difference is, Joss is dense with jokes. Aaron Sorkin is dense with like trying to sound really smart. Sorry, love you, Sorkin. Well, <laughs> you know, he he peaked, in my opinion, with West Wing. Yeah, I mean, the dialogue in West Wing is right. is captivating, but but he went a little bit over the top in Newsroom, and it, it's the the line, I mean, the dialogue is so precious. It's just, just drips with sugary stuff. It's just not, it's not good. So, yeah, I love Jeff Daniels. I think he's really a film actor. Uh, doesn't seem as fit for television. I could be wrong. But I love him and everything he does, and he's hilarious. I mean, honestly, he he cracks me up almost as much as Matt Damon, at least by a percentage standpoint. Uh, you know, his press conference, are you going to resign? No, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> and the Lord of the Rings scene, or he, oh, yeah. which was just ironic on so many levels. You had Sean Bean, the Council of Elrond. I could not believe it. And Jeff Daniels said the word Glorfindel in a way that suggested he's read the Silmarillion, even though I know he has it, just plays it so brilliantly. <laughs> he, he really convinces himself he wants to be Glorfindel. No idea who Glorfindel is. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, he killed me. He killed me. And they were running, well, we, <laughs> they began running the operation for recovery with Edgy 4 pushing forward as uh, Vincent and... Now we start meeting the players on the ground. Amazing young talent, brilliant casting. 
I mean, you know, we talk about the MacGyver stuff with Matt Damon, but in some ways what happens on Earth is more interesting um, because of how creative they have to freaking get to solve every problem, right? Right, and right. And, and, you know, I talk about um, Matt, they're, they're being able to not communicate with Matt Damon, um, with, with Watney, but they're able to figure out or, or, or um, postulate what he's doing, trying all these things, and so it gave them stuff to do, right? It's like, if you're trying to help your friend, what do you want? You want something to do. You want to be mm-hmm. proactive. And so by doing the crops and, and trying to figure out how far to take the rover and the solar panels, you know, that just put them all to work. It gave them stuff, to, to projects to work on that led to other, you know, breakthroughs. I, I mean, it was the scientific process in motion. It was glorious. Yeah, you know, the um, part of the, the astronaut training culture is that as an astronaut, you're trained to keep busy while you wait to die. Wow. And that's, yeah, I mean, that's part of the culture. And so they remain, as, as Watney did, remain laser focused on being what they call operational. And, you know, he, he defined that to the max in, in, in what he was doing to keep himself alive on, on Mars. He was laser focused on being, being operational, keeping busy while, while he was waiting to die. And that's what they're trained. I mean, that's what they're trained to to execute. And this, and this is why the the video camera stuff with Matt Damon was so brilliant because yeah. it works on a number of levels. It, it works on a direct narrative exposition level. As you know, I love great exposition from great actors. Yeah. Uh, and this this was some of the best. You actually mentioned our previous conversation. I described it as he was talking to the audience, meaning like everyone in the audience could understand. But you pointed out that from a tonal standpoint, it wasn't quite just that. Right. As soon as you said that, it, it occurred to me immediately that how I felt as he was talking into the camera, he, he, I felt like I was on the squad. I mean, I felt like I, I was, you know, down at mission control and, and p- part of the team. It just, just brings you all the way in, all the way out of the audience and in, in, into the film, I, I felt. I mean, that's that's how it impacted me. Mm. It was a great device. I love I love that device. I mean, it just just brought me right in into the movie. I mean, you know, it, it's a trope now, but The Office really started this UK and US, which is the confessionals mm-hmm. into the fake documentarian that may or may not ever be seen by people because that's the best and only way, unlike a comedy or comedy drama to get directly inside the heads of the characters. They're literally telling you what they think. Well, to be fair, I think I think your pal Shakespeare started it. Well, that's in the side, if, if that's what you're referring to. Yeah, you know, the what is it, the, the fourth wall, the fifth wall, what is it? Fourth wall, yeah, break Fourth up. wall. Right, mm-hmm. the aside. Yeah, it's the aside. Mm-hmm. You, go, uh, you go stage front right and, uh, you know, tell, tell your evil plan. <laughs> So yeah, I mean the cameras are our Shakespearean device. That's a good point. And um, boy, it was so effective. I mean, so effective. I loved that part. I mean, Matt Matt Damon could go to talk to me all day long. Absolutely. Yeah. As as he was trying, you know, to science the shit out of his problem. Yeah, yeah. And what's great is when he finally can communicate with them. It immediately starts cursing when he hears news he doesn't like. It's being yep. broadcast to the world. His emails makes no sense, but it's a great device. <laughs> um, and 
Um, but they love communicating with him. They love helping him. You know, they just, it's an interesting thing to think. If he wasn't such a great guy, you know, what would the reaction be? I, I don't want to be cynical, but, it, you know, again, it makes it, it makes it easier because he's Captain America, so you just get him. But, and for this kind of movie, you needed Captain America. There just wasn't room for that kind of moral complexity. It's not what it's about. Well, but I think it's, it's very true to, to the, to the NASA experience. I mean, they're, their reason for being is really uh, astronaut success. Right. So it's all about, you know, the life and death of, of astronauts and executing the mission. And that one person or those four people or those six people on, on, on a flight, on a mission, I mean, that's the universe. That, that's the NASA universe. So it's all about their squad that's up in, in outer space. Yep. And that's, I think that's very realistic. Absolutely. And the great thing is, you know, you have people saying, oh, we shouldn't even be trying to go to Mars. We should be spending that money elsewhere. Or, and, you know, in this movie, you could say you've already, you know, quote unquote, wasted this money. Now you're going to try and save this one guy for billions of dollars. Like, but those astronauts are way more valuable than that sum of money, you know? And that's what people don't understand. Like, you cannot put a price tag on, you know, Mark Watney or Commander Lewis. Right. I mean, that's the one thing you can't buy. It doesn't matter how much money you have. You need personnel like that, but also as symbols, you know, and he became a symbol and they didn't rub your face in it. You knew the Times Square stuff was coming, but they saved it for the very end, which was very tasteful. You you know, you knew the Apollo 13, you know, world is watching thing was going to happen. Right. I mean, it seemed seemed like the obvious move, but very tasteful. And with the China connection, and this is something I really want to talk about because I hinted in my, uh, my own review, but didn't really get to it. But we talked a lot about it, which is it's such a Star Trekky move in a science fiction property to take your real life, you know, quote unquote ad- adversary or enemy. And yes. in science fiction, make, make them your ally, but don't even mention the fact that you're making them your ally. It's just natural. Yeah. Right. Chinese government. Right. It's going to help the American government. They're going to lose money. They're giving away their technology, but we're going to do it. It's it's one scientific community collaborating with another scientific community, which which right, which the Chinese man or woman who were the heads of the Chinese space agency said almost those exact words. Oh, in a good way. I mean, meaning you know, yes, that that's how that's how they were going to justify this. You know, losing quote unquote losing this technology. It's like right. well, we're space agency and they're space agency. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, and, then, I mean, and then, I mean, okay, and this is why it, there's some weed and humor to this movie, right? You're building up this guy, Bruce, right? The Chinese-American. He's in charge of Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Big, chubby, hilariously awkward dude. Brilliant comedic timing. Just as funny just looking at him. And, you know, and that's all you need. But it turns out he's related to someone in the Chinese space agency. Right. And, you know, and at the end, he's, he's taking a picture with the Chinese, you know, scientist. And he's on the cover of Time. I mean, Bruce is the one that gets on Time magazine. Amazing. It says, uh, yeah, not only is it funny, but it's like Time magazine, him and two actual the Chinese, you know, top people or whatever. And it says brothers in arms. Yeah, I mean, Chinese and Americans, brothers in arms. It's like... You know, as you point out in our conversation, uh, maybe you didn't point out tonight, This it's, it, not only this is not a dystopia movie, but it's hinting towards at least what would be considered a realistic utopia. Right. That's, uh, that's what I, I said in our conversation yesterday uh, was that, you know, one, 
it's wonderful that that we don't have to witness yet another dystopian movie. But what what is this? It's to me, it feels like a realistic utopian movie. Now, some people may say that that's kind of an oxymoron, re realistic utopian. But it just felt, you know, as you have said in the first half hour, that if we had rejiggered our research priorities, our our science investment priorities, what happened here could could be today and not, you know. 25, 50 years out. Right. So it was realistic in, in that sense. And just the, the, uh, my comment earlier about the, uh, the, uh, humanitarian stuff that the, the humanism stuff that oozes out of the pores of this film make it to me feel utopian. So, uh, just, uh, just to stop you there, cause I do love that term, but you have a specific vision of uh, what you mean when you say humanism, you mean like old school humanism, like really about people. Yes, right. That um, you know, we have this this one man who is really the world to us, is really the the whole the whole universe. It's just one guy whose life is threatened, but you know, we're going to pull out all stops to save him. And you know, it reminds me of uh, that uh, that adage from from the Mishnah about whoever destroys a soul, it's considered as if he destroyed an entire world. Yep. And whoever saves a life, it's considered as if he saved an entire world. Yep, you um, nailed it. So that to me is, I mean, it's it's very t Talmudic uh, for me, the, the, the whole spirit of, of this, this movie because of the, um, the, the humanism that oozes from all, all over the place. And it's just a, it's an expression of just pure humanity that trumps everything. You know, there are no quantitative considerations. It's one guy and we'll do anything to save him because that's what you do. Yeah. Very Talmudic. That's a, that's a great connection. And, you know, but it begs the question, we're going to spend, you know, $5 billion to save this one dude, or we could, you know, cure like a million people of malaria or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I hate to put it in those terms, but, you know, that's the reality. And, and again, I both support the space program and was behind the theoretical decision to save this guy and would be in real life for reasons that we, we've talked about and other reasons. Mm -hmm. um, as you point out, more sort of hinting at it, the symbolic reasons, you know, as I like to look at it, the question always comes down to what is the life of one good man worth? And like truly good men. And, uh, you know, the, Sean Bean says the same thing uh, when he's having his spat with Daniels, who doesn't want to authorize a rescue mission. And yes. before Sean Bean calls him a coward, which I thought was a little a, a low blow, but whatever, you know, Jeff Daniels says, you know, this is about more than one man. And, and Sean Bean says, no, it's not. Um, exactly. Which is and, really and, and the same Sean, thing. Sean Bean was right. Yep. I, I, I agree with him. He, he got fired for it, but you noticed – even though he got fired after the mission was over, how happy he was in his in his fired state. <laughs> yep. Oh yeah. yeah. And the amazing thing is that all the people we could help in Africa, they would fucking be cheering for this shit too. I mean, yeah. it's so. I wish they had shown third world countries. I think they didn't. I actually was thinking about this. They, they just stuck to like you know London, China, the U.S., and maybe like one other spot. I mean, part of it was for money, but I think they. Ridley Scott is actually sensitive to this stuff and would think that that could be misinterpreted as, you know, oh, look, all the Africans are celebrating the Americans or something like that. <laughs> but the reality is they would be celebrating. So, you know, but I understand why he didn't do it.
And, and going back and going back to your malaria point, you know, it, it's it's not a, a zero one proposition. No. You either you either save Mark Watney or or you cure malaria with a with the five or ten or fifteen billion. What you do is you do both. You just rejigger your priorities so you're not spending you know three trillion dollars in in the sandbox, and instead you know invest in humanitarian humanistic uh, uh, objectives. I mean, you know, I, I, this is why I always say 10% from the military budget. People, if you don't know what the military budget is, Google United States military budget and the full one, um, both earmarked and non-earmarked, take 10% of it. It's in the hundreds of billions, I mean, I mean, over a number of years. And so we could fund NASA and fight sure. malaria and do all of this crap if you just sure. take that money away. So right. I, that, that's what I use to sort of neutralize the... The, the, the criticism is not really a criticism. And so I can't remember how much we talked about it, but it seems so obvious and, in fact, was the case that the crew would immediately you know decide not just to risk their lives but to disobey their bosses to risk their lives to save this guy. But I never didn't buy it, even from the German guy who, who didn't see much, but he just fit in. They had great chemistry. Yeah, I mean, there's no way they were not going to go fetch him. Yep. You know, it's just... It's all part of the astronaut culture. It's all part of the the, the military culture. Yep. Uh, you don't leave a guy behind, and um, there was no way that they were not going to, you know, sacrifice another. Uh, how how many days was it? More extra? Five hundred and three. There was going to be nine hundred days total for them in space. Yeah. Right. Right. So th- th- there was never a question ab- about it. And uh, I think they made it all, so believable that they were going to going to a buck authority and um, your girlfriend, Kate Mara, was going to uh, hack into the computers. Love her. Yeah. They're going to hack into the computers so that na- ground control couldn't take control of, of their ship. And they were just going to they were just going to go for it. And uh, it just it I, I, I bought it. I totally did too. I know. I want to come up with a reason to not no. buy it, but I can't find no. one. And again, to bring it back to the beginning, this movie is 100% about execution on every level. And so it neutralizes any criticism you can have. And as I mentioned at the very beginning of my review, it, it looks like a comp, you know, by-the-numbers, complicated, but by-the-numbers Hollywood movie if you just structure it out. But yes. it, even in my notes, I've got like 10 or 12 acts in this movie. You know, it, 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 it takes the numbers and just scrambles them all over the place and draws <laughs> some. I mean, this is Ridley Scott coloring outside the lines. You never see this. Right. You know, the point that you make that the whole first half of the movie, well, not half first half, but the but. Thirty or forty minutes is, is just Matt Damon, yep. uh, and it's just just it's just it's a beautiful structure that that Ridley created, mm-hmm. and I guess the, the writers created. Um, it's just yeah. So it's it's Hollywood on the surface, but when you scratch the surface, it's it's there's a lot of outside the box facets to it. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> quite an interesting contrast to Moon as well, wouldn't you say? Oh yeah, I mean Moon, Moon. Oh God, is, Moon is so depressing and dark. <laughs> yeah, but it's <laughs> it's sickly funny. It, it has some some good self referential space humor too. Right. Um, yeah, it, yeah. Moon is dark and bizarre, um, but uh, you know, 
in the moon portrayal of what would happen to someone in space for that long by themselves is more realistic than True. you know a guy with zero real human contact for like two full years essentially but he sells it and and the movie never stops long enough for you to question anything that you might question well but but remember i mean by the time he's he made his final um uh 3600 kilometer trip or whatever it was to the, yep. to the far side mm -hmm. he was in bad shape he was in bad physical shape and he was just ha hanging on um, um mentally right yeah yeah. I mean, his his teeth were rotting. He'd lost 80 pounds, and he was malnourished. His his capillaries were were bursting. He he was getting emotional. Um, so I mean, he, he really they really showed in a very quick kind of impressionistic few uh, frames where he ended up in terms of his coping, where he ended up after that long. How how long was it uh, before? He, they they swung back to him. What, how how long was his stay? Yeah, how how many uh, SOLs? It was like what four or five hundred days or something that he was up there or more? Yeah, it was a year and a half, I believe. Okay. Yeah, and it was like five hundred some days. Right. And he had uh, a handful of, of near death experiences over the course of that year and a half or two. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the part that gets me choked up the most and, and continues to get me choked up is. When you know the very end, spoiler alert, he's sitting in the pod, you know, again trying to hit a bullet with his smaller bullet to you know to rendezvous with this moving spaceship and blast into space. And when it, and the, the engines go on and everyone in the world's watching, and he hears Jessica Chastain's voice for the first time in a year and a half, mm. and she just asks him if he's ready, and he tries to keep it in, but he's like shaking and crying. Yeah, um, yeah. It's that was a great, great scene. Oh my great god! Scene. But back to your point, yeah, I mean, you see him bruised and malnourished, and he's driving. And what's great is they've got the creepy Pink Floyd type stuff going, but then they've got like David Bowie or like you know, like they got like road trip music, you know. Right. It's like <laughs> right. keep mixing up with the musical cues. Yeah. And then he gets there, and what's great is they know exactly which exposition to tell us and which does not need to be repeated. So we know mm -hmm. that he's been told this crazy plan about how he's to take apart this you know, shuttle pod for it to work. Uh, and he talks about how they keep saying, you know, you'll be the fastest human ever or something. And and he, and he says, you know, they think they think it sounds great. Like, you know, I'll be happy with it. Fastest, fastest man ever. And then he pauses. He's like, I do kind of like it. I like it a lot. <laughs> you know, like, right. he he, right. he lets it play. That's the thing. Anything that seems egotistical is totally self-deprecating and meant to him to calm himself down. Right. Absol I mean, absolutely. This is in this way when I, uh, the therapy of talking to the cameras. I can only imagine. You you have to th wonder. Like I listen to my podcast. Uh, he. I wonder if he watches videos of himself. It's interesting to think. Yeah, that's a good question. Right. But it was definitely as as he was doing his his daily logs, talking to the to the video camera in the um what was that thing called the 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 habitat place what's that called where the, he it's was called living? the hab the hab right yeah, i'm still trying to figure out what that stands for well it may stand for habitat but but it could be an, an acronym too yep um yeah it's probably an, an acronym but uh you know it's all that talk time to the video recorder um it's definitely therapeutic for him yeah. definitely it pl plays a big role in his his being able to you know keep busy while while you wait to die. So you know the, the as we talked about a little yesterday. I mean this 
movie such a great commercial. And we were talking about this even before we got to halftime in, in, in the first the first viewing. Is it's such a great commercial for NASA, yep. for JPL, for space exploration. For it's a great commercial for teamwork. Yep. And who represents on screen the uh, quote unquote typical super genius at JPL who, who's way too young and way too smart? Donald Glover. One of the most hilarious performances out of nowhere I've ever seen. Absolutely. I mean, wow. What a, a brilliant, endearing, wonderful, charming, inspiring character. And 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 the comedic chops when when he was doing that interaction with um with Jeff Daniels character, the director of NASA. I mean, that could have been, I mean, you could argue that was the absolutely most funny part of, of the film, even though there were so many the stapler and they, and they hit Kristen Wiig on the head with the pen and he's making oh. the noises and Jeff Daniels has this look on his face like god I despise this kid but he's brilliant I need to hear everything he's saying mm-hmm. and so he takes it all in and he goes rich and rich just goes yeah and Jeff Daniels goes get out <laughs> so the, so the adults can talk this over I mean you know how how, how does he know that this is what Caltech kids are like um, you know when when they when I knew, they grow I knew up. that but i mean to to every nuance i mean the way he just captured that that persona was was brilliant well there are a lot of brilliant engineers that don't go to caltech too well so. but i'm obviously just using yeah. that as short oh yeah no of course of course meaning this guy could have been around a lot of you know smart computer slash engineer people in the past and extrapolated it. He probably talked to Kip Thorne. I mean, Thorne's always advising on all this stuff. So, mm. um, that you know, that wouldn't surprise me. But he's, yeah, totally hilarious. Comes up with the Council of Elrond thing. Amazing. <laughs> and, you know, before we even meet him, he jumps out of bed, dumps out his coffee into a trash can with holes in it and no plastic bag, and then slips on the coffee <laughs> and then gets up and says, I need more coffee. <laughs> And then the way he gets into Jeff Jeff Daniels' personal space, yeah. I mean, that was so hysterical. He's right up in his grill and has his hands in his pockets. Pocket and, the pen, yeah. right? He's like he's like molesting him, right. uh, if not if not f- physically verbally. And he and didn't even know who Jeff Daniels was. He goes, "My name." No idea. Yeah, no idea. He didn't care. Yeah. He didn't care. All, all he cares about is the knowledge, the information, the insights, and, and solving the damn problem. But there's two great twists with his character. One is, and this is very subtle. So his arc begins right before the arc of the failed uh, rocket launch. You know, when they finally said, okay, we're going to try and shoot a rocket to crash land into the planet to deliver him supplies, which they didn't test and went wrong. You know, the the odds were low, but, you know, that stuff happens all the time. So the rich stuff happened before that. And and I noticed this either yesterday or today, which was that very quickly they cut to him looking at his computer after the missile launch. Meaning, he, I don't think he ever thought that was going to work. His plan uh-huh. was completely <laughs> dependent on, on different variables because uh-huh. that didn't interrupt his work at all. He just kept working at it. That's a great point. Um, and then, of course, the Chinese had to come in with their thing. So, you know, I saw the slingshot thing coming in general, but the specifics of the rescue effort were spectacular. I mean... You know, I love space operas. This is not that. A sci-fi movie like this, I don't know what to compare. I really don't. I mean, it doesn't even remind me of anything. Well, you know, I, I read uh, a few reviews, and, and the, the New York Times guy's review of it 
while he loved it, I found it annoying because he he called it a nerd thriller, and I really objected to his calling it a nerd thriller. Well, this is like this is like at the Academy Awards. They you know they make jokes about comic book movies, but exactly, every, but everyone there is in comic book movies, right? It, it's for me. There's nothing nerdy about it whatsoever. The, the dollars do not seem to indicate that nerdiness is uh, proportional to, to to this movie. You know what I mean? I'm, right. Regular people are seeing this movie. And that's how it should be. Yeah. There's there's nothing nerdy. That's the it's it, here's the thing. I'm not offended because it's like 20 years old that that mode of thinking. I mean, anyone of my generation or younger, it, we don't even recognize that word. I mean, we recognize it, and we joke about it, but you know, it, it's actually insult to the person saying it because they're idiots. <laughs> Or well, or don't or you know or or don't accept that science is cool you know I mean come on you know these days the the <laughs> the, the uh, genius uh, Playboy billionaires and and Silicon Valley get the ladies so you know you 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 could glibly argue that uh, that Glover's character Rick Purnell is is the nerdiest of, of all the characters but it, it, but he's not nope. he, he you know it's he's like the coolest he, in my opinion. He and his brain are like heroic, and yeah. he's he's operating using his brain in the real world, you know, solving monster real world problems, and he's sciencing the shit out of stuff, and so it's just heroic. It has nothing to do with being nerdy. It just has just 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 brainy, but not not nerdy. Right. Well, that would be the thing. Uh, it, you you can call Watney a nerd, but you cannot call Donald Glover's character a nerd. You know, he might be a geek. But he's not a nerd. Um, right. You know, nerd is more cultural. Hey, that's the thing. This is why I don't read the New York Times movie reviews. It's it's why they make fun of them in Birdman. They chose the New York Times very specifically <laughs> yeah, right. in Birdman. Seriously, they chose right. the New York Times very specifically. I don't know if the woman, that horrible yes. you know, woman who was you know promising to trash his play before it happened and end up running a glowing review because he tried to kill himself which he was quite entertained by i guess anyways yeah it's way too pretentious that's why i read rolling stone you know mm-hmm. that's why i read you can't, can't do like newspapers or old school publications they just want it to sound too smart about <laughs> i mean you either recognize this is a good movie or it's not another uh <laughs> another one-liner yeah. Um, it, so, okay, so Matt Damon thinks of, of the hex, the uh, hexadecimal system to communicate really quickly. For me, like, if I had to pick, like, one of the, my, let's put it this way, my favorite part of the movie that wasn't, like, you know, the end or whatever, mm-hmm. was the was a Pathfinder thing. That he would think to dig up the Pathfinder from 19-fucking-97, mm-hmm. at least 20 years ago, in terms of the timeline of the movie, and use that as a communication device, and for NASA, or at that point, JPL, to know immediately where he's going with it. But you've got, and this is it, you've got some guys with two lines. they got the computer operator there with Bruce and uh, and Vincent, and they're, they're asking him, you know, can this hexa, hexadecimal thing work? He goes, well, it's not exactly going to be an Algonquin roundtable. <laughs> that was a great line. Oh, my <laughs> God, that was so terrific. Oh man, but right, yeah, it's not going to be an Algonquin roundtable. But, but that's oh. where the movie flipped because that was the first time when they were establishing direct communication 
that they mm-hmm. that they could help, right? And yes. so I I post I I, I uh, guess by the way I don't know I have to look this up. <laughs> Remember when they introduced like this is the original Pathfinder team or whatever to Chiwetel Ejiofor? I bet those were the real guys. I don't know that for sure, oh, but I, I would not be surprised. But uh, yeah, that they built the replica with the frequency, you know, and uh, that was just so brilliant. I don't know how Weir came up with these this stuff, but that's where the movie flips because that's when that connects finally, mm-hmm. right? Well, you know, I, I did a little, a, a very little bit of reading on, on Weir, but he has quite a, a pedigree. Um, his his dad is a scientist at Lawrence Livermore Labs, which is you know where they invented the A and the H bombs, and uh, they continued to do like the the most groundbreaking stuff there with plasma physics and all that all that stuff. Right. And his mom uh, is uh, some kind of an en- uh, electrical engineer or some kind of. So I mean, yeah, he, he he's got IQ points out the wazoo. And he himself what was a software it well was I guess he's going to be an full time author now. He was a software engineer. At places like uh, at AOL and uh, a bunch of startups in Silicon Valley and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And he, he was just a it was a hobbyist. You know, this was his hobby, and and no no publishers would pick this book up. So he started to publish chapters on his website, mm. and then somehow um, Crown Publishers. That's a brilliant idea. Got yeah, got wind of it, and they they bought it. Yep. Well, it's like the Harry Potter thing, you know, every once in a while. Yeah, every once in a while, right. The hand of God reaches down. <laughs> but right. So just really quickly about the book, do you think you would ever read the book? I think I, I, I would read the book. Yeah. Um, I know you, you know, we talked about it um, the other day, and you felt it would be too much exposition about the science. Well, here's the all- thing, though. It's only like 350 pages. And so uh-huh. I'm thinking maybe it does move like the movie does, which would be brilliant. Oh, huh. Meaning he does the techno babble, but he's not fetishizing the description of the science fiction environment, if you will. Exactly, right. Like in a right, fan, right. like in a Tolkien book. I mean, that's the thing. You you have to like Tolkien in spite of the fact that he spends eight hundred pages writing about nature, you know, which is yes. fine. But yeah, the the closest genre of book I, I've always wanted to get into that's related to this from a tone standpoint but they just aren't that many great works, is the Arthur C. Clarke-style mm. artifacts, archaeology, science fiction, where mm. it's based on, it could be current or far future, but based on discovering some alien artifact in deep space that is you know, actually ancient, is usually how mm. it's set up. But there's uh-huh. a million variations about how it's manifested physically and, and you know, in terms of what the secret is. and It's, like a, it's an archaeology thriller that's set in space. Um, it has a similar tone to this in terms of the, uh, you know, talking a lot about the technology, but it's always utilitarian. It's never fetishizing the technology, right? Yes. It's it's yes. always like, this does this, so I'm using this, you know? And it's great. And it's great. I mean, yeah, and Matt Damon wrote on the wall all the days. I mean, the thing is, you write down everything in the movie, and it's, yeah, I don't know. It just feels, it feels fresher than it would look on paper. Again, I think this is all execution. Well, it- Right now, I was just, uh, you made me think of something that we hadn't talked about before. Sure. I was Go. thinking about the, the, most, the most shocking science piece of, of the movie for me. And I may be forgetting something, and you, you'll point it out to me, but, but that whole stripping down the MAV, the Mars Ascent Vehicle. Ah, that's what it stands for. Wow, nice job. Yeah, Mars Ascent Vehicle. Mm. You, you pull out the 500... Uh, 5,000 kilograms of weight. Right. And then they, they, they're going to fly it. Uh, Martinez is going to fly it remotely. Uh, and, and then 
they they they, t- they take off the damn nose cone of it and 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 put a tent, you know, put a piece of canvas. And, and, Bru- and Bruce is explaining, trying to explain this gently to Chiwetel Ejiofor's character and 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 the whole NASA team. And he goes, "Wait, you haven't even heard the bad news yet." And as you pointed out, yeah, he's taking off the front, you know. He's, the windows were out. The, the 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 top of the ship was out, and it was covered in canvas. And it's like astounding that 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 sign and and all he had to protect himself from from the vacuum of outer space was his suit. Here we go. All right. What's the bad stuff? Vincent, quote. <laughs> yeah, right. You want to take the front of his ship off? Bruce, quote. Yes. <laughs> Vincent, quote. You want to send him into space under a tarp? Bruce, quote. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And the yeah. look on his—that's the thing. You have to see his physical physical comedy. I mean, it's yes. so uh, the Uncle Tommy thing. I mean, it's just amazing. Yes. Yes. And, you know, but the thing is, this doesn't feel like a Ridley Scott movie. Although I would argue, having seen a lot of his movies a bunch of times, that filming-wise, he does take from his repertoire for sure. He just goes oh, he yeah. takes from his whole repertoire everything for yeah. this movie from a film standpoint i think he makes howard ron howard and steven spielberg's more recent efforts look a little amateurish i'm not gonna lie hmm. i don't know if you agree with that you know i mean i don't what, what's spielberg even done ron howard's done rush it was good you know this was much better i know it's a different movie but anyway so ridley's guy can do anything but I, i'm i'm not surprised that he's capable of this i guess i've just seen so much from him at this point right that you're going yeah. okay he can do anything yeah so you know i mean my my parting thoughts would be that uh i i want to i would uh Pay great honor to Andy Weir for having written this yes. this property for for doing this incredible humanistic piece of a realistic utopian drama. I, I want to see more of it and and honor uh, Ridley Scott for having brought it to life. Yeah. I mean, it was just it's just such incredible entertainment. And beyond that, you know, the uplift that you get from it, uh, everybody's got to see it. And I just hope it gets the you know the um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The acclaim. The acclaim that that it deserves. Yep. Because it's just I, I just want to see more of these movies. I but I think the acclaim uh, in terms of real substance is going to come in the form of the classroom. I honestly think and the, they're going to show this movie to like they should to, to high school freshmen, science students. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be great? I mean, I mean that, that should be the very like your first day of school. Nope, no science class. We're watching freaking The Martian. Yeah. And we're going to science the shit out of this, which yeah. you know, I mean, people don't laugh at that line in the screenings because everyone heard it in the trailer, but I still laugh every time. Cause oh, God, this, it's so brilliant. It's it, such a brilliant line. And it sums up the whole movie. We're going to sign... And this yeah. is the, almost like the Guardians of the Galaxy feel, which I mentioned before, right? I mean, they're, yeah. and he does mention that he's a space pirate, and they're all acting kind of like pirates. It's great. You know, you got the mutiny. You got the five crew members. They got different personalities. Like the, this, And, you know, just to bring it back to the nerdy stuff on Bizzlecast, which you understand because you've listened to it and you've seen all this, is this is a superhero movie in all the best ways. And I think that it is what puts it over the top as something that, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14-year-olds will really get into. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to know if there's a more realistic superhero movie that that's ever been made. It's so realistic. Absolutely. It's, it's so swallowable. You could argue that some military war movies 
I don't know, maybe would fit that category, but no, but I think th those are more, I don't know. Those are probably more one dimensional. It, that's, it's all about courage. Well, Jessica Chastain was a superhero in, in zero dark 30, I think. Oh, huh. you know, I love the, 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 uh, the, the, the realistic superhero dimension of, of this. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I always love making the superhero comparison, and this was great because I got to have a superhero movie in October without having to actually have a superhero movie. It's Correct. fantastic. Correct. You know, I love Marvel, but it's it's almost getting too much. You need some spacing, but you need movies like this. You really do. Um, and uh, you know, I mean, with near future science fiction, it's the it's the best genre for dealing with issues that we will be dealing with in the future that's the whole yeah. point right yeah yeah uh, and so uh you know i mean it was two and a half hours and there was no moral ambiguity right there was mm -hmm. just jeff daniels in the beginning uh, pretending to be a bad guy who never was really going to be against it you know briefly him and sean bean butt heads for like three seconds but everyone's on board there's no bad guys but it feels more multidimensional than movies that try and do all of those things. And I don't know what that says. Maybe you and I are just uh, rosy-eyed optimists when it comes to some of this stuff. Well, yeah, I, I think I think that's that's true. I mean, I could just watch this genre, whatever this genre is, I could watch it all day long. So just as a quick comparison, then we'll let you go to Bridge with Ex Machina, which is a movie you loved and kind of got me into. And then I ended up doing a commentary of my buddy Aaron recently for Ex Machina. Awesome movie. And I said that Ex Machina, um, let me frame it this way, that The Martian is the anti-Ex Machina from a film genre standpoint. Correct. And what's interesting is there are major dystopian uh, connotations to Ex Machina. I mean, major, major, right? And, I mean, for all, I mean, both because of how flawed Nathan is and humanity is, but also Ava could literally go out and like build a robot army. I mean, that that could be in continuity with the Matrix. Like Ava's escape could be the thing that ultimately triggers the Matrix, but you know, could. Mm -hmm. right? So uh, just because I love hearing your your opinion on the films, do a quick comparison. You loved both of these films, but I have to imagine for very different reasons. Right for 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 Dar you know, I just you know, I, it's almost like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. I I said way early on this evening that I have a hard on for dystopic properties but <laughs> but it was the the brilliant execution of the darkness of of this movie ex machina that i just found kind of mesmerizing and again it was the realistic component of it um as i'm pointing out in in the martian piece yep. i, I th it also felt to me very realistic on what what nathan was was doing and and the whole that the whole science fiction story. So I just found it, it just grabbed me. And I thought it was very compelling. I mean, we know Alex Garland who wrote and directed that movie was influenced by Blade Runner at least, you know, I mean, you, you cannot make movies like that. And I mean, it's just known that's, that's the movie when it comes to AI that launched the modern genre. And they're right. doing tons of Ridley Scott stuff in that movie, which I kind of noticed at the time. And I mean, this is a total compliment. Got, I think Garland is definitely influenced by Ridley Scott. It's dark vision of science fiction. And I, um, I guess I'll say this is part of what lends sort of a slightly irrational amount of gravitas to a movie that is two-dimensional in some ways just the fact that it is Ridley Scott and he has that darkness and depth to him. Even though we don't see the you know deep, dark Ridley Scott in this movie, but just the fact that he's there 
uh, it's like with Kubrick, right, or Coppola. The, it's just their aura makes the movie, you know, go f- even further. And, and, and just to, just to wrap it up and go back to the important thing, which is the characters. He knows what he's doing with a cast like this. I mean, right? What, am I wrong? No, I mean, I you know, who I don't know who you're going to give give all the credit to and how, how you're going to parse it and and apportion it. But I mean, the the execution of this ensemble cast was you know something to to marvel in whether it was, you know, X percent Ridley Scott and X percent the, the writing or whatever, but it, the execution, and I guess the, yeah, you know, the buck stops with the director, I suppose, in, in most, in most pieces. So it was, it was beautifully, beautifully executed. I mean, with all the modern design of some of the shots and like, you know, the fonts and, you know, there was just such a modern design that, that took the best of kind of Spielbergian uh, futurism, I would say, from an aesthetic standpoint, took it much further, had some interstellar aspects for sure, visually, aesthetically. You know, part of me thinks Scott had a, like a, a visual advisor for this movie. And part of me thinks he really is just that smart and lucid and just knows exactly what the fuck he's doing. Well, it would be interesting to know who found that wadi in, in Jordan that that is so Martian like. Yeah, I, um, I'm I'm I don't I'm going to do research on this, Dad, but I can tell you the actual stuff from Jordan was very minimal in this movie. That was almost you sure. Oh yeah, yep, yep, yep. They they had like one or two angles, but for the most part, the thing is, I think they took 3D satellite imagery. In fact, I'm almost positive took actual NASA close up high def footage and overlaid CGI onto the terrain. But they filmed a lot of that inside. They had green screens all over the place, including on the ceiling. So Matt Damon is literally standing in a room full of red sand and green screens everywhere. Um, I could be wrong. We'll have to see when the uh, when the DVD comes out. But my prediction is there wasn't. I'm not sure Matt Damon ever went to Jordan. I think they just filmed exteriors there. I could be wrong. Uh, oh no, I think that's I think that's probably that's probably correct. Yeah. Um, you know, they they built the, the these 20 different sets, and together I read that they're the biggest biggest ever built. Yep. And um, the other thing I read that I don't know if you because you never mentioned it. I don't know if you've seen it, but Damon did five weeks. All by himself, and he 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 never met the cast until later. Well, until he started started promoting the movie, is what I I, I read. Wait, he didn't even in the initial scene and then the 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 recovery scene at the end. That's that's what I read. He he was alone for five weeks, and didn't meet up with the other cast members until the until the, the you know the marketing stuff. Are you insinuating that Damon's being a dick, or just that that was part of the artistic process? That was part of the art. No, it had nothing to do with Damon. It was how Ridley Scott wanted yeah. to to ex- execute the production of the movie. Totally, and, and you know, I'm glad you mentioned that. And this will be my last thought, or one of my last thoughts, which is that he. <laughs> Scott plus Damon, they could have done the entire movie on Mars if they wanted to. I'm glad they didn't because I really wanted this kind of movie. Yeah. But in terms of talent and skill level and just know-how and ability to get it done, they could have had 80 to 90% of this be on Mars as opposed to you know 30 or 40%. I think. Well, then, then it would have been more, more like Gravity, right? It would have been more like Gravity. It would have been like Castaway, the Robert Redford movie, yeah, yeah, like Life Cast- of Pi. I mean, the isolation movies, it's just, you know, you can only do so many. I, I don't love them. 
you know, usually. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, but they're good enough to do it. I'm glad they went the other way. The cast was amazing. Yeah, I mean, you know, we should praise, you know, the casting director. We should praise the costume yeah. people. We should praise yes. the, the set designers and the makeup people. And they all look great. Very human. Yeah, I, I really, you know, <laughs> it's crazy. There's a bunch of actors in this movie I loved going in that I love more. There was some I was on the border about, like Chastain, who I love way more. And there was some like Kate Mara, who I just thought was cute, who now I have a reason to have a movie crush on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just, God, I love, she's so appealing. She's like such a regular chick. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, th- this was a truly great Hollywood movie. I, I called it an A-plus Hollywood movie and an A-plus sci-fi movie. I'm not going to say A-plus movie, but in those two categories, I give it an A-plus. Uh, I'm glad that we had the the opportunity to, to, to spend good money on this movie. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I yeah. can't, I mean, you know the Blu-ray is going to have all sorts of uh, extras and, and the commentary maybe they'll get Damon to do commentary oh man yeah that'll be great that'll be great great Right. So, all right. Well, any last thoughts before we uh, send off? No, that, that was it. I, I just um, I'm glad we spent the last few minutes sort of honoring the whole thing because they just deserve a, a lot of kudos, and uh, it, it I can't wait to see it a second time. Yeah, and you know the lesson here is that the thousand people on the film team mirror exactly the NASA people were watching in the movie. Um, I was I was I was just thinking that that's absolutely correct. Yep. And, you know, their goals aren't as noble, but that's not the point, you know. Their their commitment is there. Um, these are certainly people you could trust in situations like that, you know. Again, it's all about your personnel. And, uh, yeah, uh, Mark Watney's an American hero. You know, they haven't even opened this in China and Japan. They're already over 300 mil. You know humongous. China is going to be humongous for a movie it's like humongous. this. It's going to be humongous yeah. for this movie. It, it could be like... $500 million or something. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it makes the Chinese look so good. It makes it look smarter than us. You know, I mean, even our JPL guys from China, uh, it's great. It's totally great, you know. And of course, you know, in the serenity in 500 years from now, the, the Chinese American empire will have spread across the globe. So who knows where this partnership could go. Well, Bizzlecast, very happy to have you on. Um, I think this is going to do well. People love the Papa Bizzle references. So anything you want to say to the uh, the listeners? Well, I just want to thank you for letting me spend this time with you and with the, uh, the, the Bizzle universe out there. And I hope I get a chance to do it again. Absolutely. Go out there, see The Martian at least once, if not two or three times. It is worth it. Don't bother with 3D. <laughs> I never watched 3D. This movie's so epic. You don't need 3D. Just get good sound and a good screen, some comfortable chairs. And thanks for listening, and we are out. <laughs>